got our recording started. So all of you are aware we do record these and we try to get them as posted as soon as possible. And I apologize once again for the mix up, but I'm just going to go ahead and throw things over to Eric right off the bat and get things started. I know he's got lots to talk about. Eric, glad you made it. Hey, thanks, Kevin. Uh, two seconds and we'll get this going here. Just get the slideshow running. All right. Um, yeah, anyways, uh, welcome. Uh, Tuesdays at 2, you guys are mostly familiar, I think, with probably the uh, the intros at the front here, right? Um, about 30 slides today, uh, and then we'll do the Q&A at the end, right? Um, as usual, just trying to get through uh, some of the thicker stuff of the contract and the legal language and put it to kind of a common man's discussion uh, so we can uh, understand uh, how the language works a little better, right? Uh, as well as learn how the grievance process works to uh, protect our contract and uh, our work rules and pay. So a uh, couple things to go over today. I just want to talk a little bit about uh, the contract language uh, changes, right, that implement with uh, January 1 of 2024. Uh, and then um, just have a slide on the midterm items, right? I think uh, most people saw the comm come out yesterday uh, that, uh, that we'll put out, but um, just want to... Uh, talk about them here too. Uh, we'll try and get like a all pilot call together to really dig into the midterm items. I'm happy to do that stuff during the Q and a, um, but, uh, uh, it, I think it would be helpful to just kind of really get into it and, and talk about all eight items and, and what they are and what they mean. Frankly, some of the company items, I, I just don't know what they're asking for yet either. So, uh, hard to dig into the stuff. Um, I don't want to speak for them in terms of what they're asking for, but, um, also just a congratulations to, uh, Brian Rosine on the, uh, chief pilot position. Uh, I think he's going to do a great job in that position. We're really, really happy to see someone, uh, in the management ranks um, with some labor experience who can, um, you know, speak to uh, how labor works and, and what uh, what it does, right? Um, so that uh, they can have someone internally that they trust uh, to have those conversations. And I think they're looking for someone in Brian uh, to help them run their labor policy, which is, uh, that's a really good thing. Uh, they kind of need to, um, have someone who understands the pilot side of this a little bit better as well as training, right? So uh, he is the right guy for the job. Happy to see it. Uh, also, we're going to talk about um, one particular grievance filing, and it it's fairly complex, which is why we're just going to do one today uh, and pick apart the different uh, parts of the language uh, that it touches on. Um yeah, just one one sim fill assignment and kind of where it uh, where it went wrong and uh, all of the various different uh, contract provisions that it touches on because uh, there's some pretty important stuff in that uh, this particular grievance filing. Um, all right, uh, so stuff that changes January first, right? Three uh, percent uh, cost of living increase, right? Uh, so not the longevity step raise, but three percent um, uh, cost of living increase. Uh, we moved to DOS plus two rates. Uh, there is one more um, change with uh, next January 1st, uh, and that's a 6% change. Uh, that's the last of the increases before we get into uh, the next contract cycle. And we're now uh, just 18 months away from early openers. Um, just to kind of help people wrap their head around that, uh, the prep time for uh, the Section 6 process, right, the formal 
negotiating process that occurs under the uh, Railway Labor Act, that's Section 6. And what, uh, and so I'm not talking about Section 6 in our contract, it's Section 6 in the RLA. Um, the bargaining cycle uh, really takes about 18 months to prep for. And so uh, while we're running, you know, the midterm bargaining cycle will take up kind of all the air in the room for about the next 60 days. Uh, and then we really need to turn our focus over to uh, prepping for uh, for Section 6, while at the same time, all of the grievance process and all of the arbitrations are running in the background. So really high workload, um, as high as I've ever seen in, in any MEC that I've been involved in, uh, just a pretty brisk pace, right? Um, which is good. Uh, we're getting we're getting stuff done. It's uh, it's a slow moving game with the grievance process, but uh, it is moving forward. Um, also, along with that, uh, the five hour true minimum daily credit comes into play. Okay, so uh, last year it was an average min day, right? So say over the course of of three days, you might have uh, you know seven and a half hours of credit on day one, not fly at all on day two, and then seven and a half hours of credit on day three. That's an average min day that pays 15 hours, um, and that would pay off of credit, right? Um, now, under uh, the true min day, how that would pay, right? Seven and a half hours of credit for day one, five for day two, where you had no work, uh, no flying, right? Um, and then seven and a half hours uh, for day three, which is 20 hours of pay. Uh, the true min day uh, is a pretty significant increase and it's designed, right, to increase the efficiency of the flying um, and make our uh, the burden of that inefficiency not uh, placed on, on our backs, right? Um, so it really is designed to force uh, more efficiency into the schedule. Uh, you know, the company really needs to increase the amount of passenger flying that's occurring uh, to offset that so that they're making revenue uh, rather than just paying rig. Um, and the way you do that is either through passenger flying um, uh, or uh, decreasing the amount of cargo flying, right? Um, but if you want to uh, offset the amount of cargo flying that we're doing, uh, it really needs to be kind of... Um, uh, let's say diluted by the uh, pretty dramatic increase in efficient passengers line. So um, anyways, we'll dig into uh, the five hour midday and another um, uh, Tuesdays at two, because I think it really does need to, uh, you know, have a, a good hour or two discussion on how it works. Uh, there are a lot of questions. It is significantly different than the average midday. Um, the last of the uh, increases in the direct contribution, uh, right, for the 401k, uh, we move up to a 15% contribution uh, January 1st. We'll see that reflected in the uh, second check of January, right? That's for the uh, first two months of January's work. And then um, uh, not a minor thing, right? It kind of uh, only affects the training pilots, but uh, is the end of uh, general solicitation emails, uh, for uncovered training events. Um, the company needs to be posting uncovered training events in OMS, uh, so uh, ECRU, and uh, if they want to send anything out to alert people that there is open time to be had there, that needs to be done via an automated uh, ECRU system, which uh, they have not uh, taken any steps, as far as I'm aware of, to program. 
Um, but as of the first, no more uh, emails from uh, training scheduling going out to uh, specific pilots, right? All right. Uh, so midterm items, uh, just to kind of recap these, right? Uh, the ALPA package has to do with trades, right? And the reason that it has to do with trades, uh, because we are well aware that the, the number one issue at this airline is the schedule quality. Um, and like I said, uh, if you want to make better schedules, you need more efficient flying, right? Same conversation as the Minday conversation. Um, that means uh, efficient passenger flying, right? And uh, if we, because uh, we don't control uh, what the company chooses to do in terms of uh, the kind of flying that they're doing, right? Uh, but what we can control is some negotiation over schedule flexibility. And that's what this package is designed to do uh, and reflects uh, the negotiating uh, survey that uh, came out several months ago, right? So uh, what we're proposing is uh, partial trip drops, right, including jetway trades. Uh, what this is, is, you know, a trip comes back through, uh, say, Minneapolis, and you can cut the trip at that point, uh, drop some portion of the trip, um, and then uh, vertical and non-vertical trades. Vertical is the same calendar days, uh, which uh, the system does right now. Non-vertical uh, is something that uh, across the industry is uh, it's different calendar days, right? So you have a four-day, um, say, at the beginning of the month, and you want to trade that for a four-day at the end of the month. And uh, that's a non-vertical trade because it's not the same calendar days. And uh, the approval part of that is tied to number four there, the reserve staffing thresholds for trip drops. Um, and you might ask, why are they separate and distinct, right? Uh, because that's the way that this negotiation was structured is separate, distinct, singular items, right? So one ask is the non-vertical and vertical trades. And the other uh, ask is for the staffing threshold, uh, which is similar to um, the, uh, let's say, the Alaska contract has something called an ARC, which is um, adequate reserve coverage, right? So it's the ability to uh, do what is called across the industry a, a bad day, worst day trade, right? So uh, let's say your four-day trip at the beginning of the month uh, has some bad staffing. They're a little tight there, right? But you're willing to pick up uh, a four-day uh, that has worse staffing, uh, towards the end of the month, uh, that trade would be approved based on um, uh, some mathematical logarithms tied to uh, staffing thresholds, right? Uh, so not denied uh, subjectively, or as we're seeing right now, full-on blanket denials of all trades and drops, uh, specifically drops. Um, Important to have that amount of flexibility, right? So uh, also number three here, reserve ads, right? And what we're looking at is reserve ads from 72 to 24 hours prior to report. Outside of 72 hours, there's an earnings opportunity problem there. Um, inside of 72 hours, uh, crew scheduling can assign work to reserve pilots. Uh, so presumably uh, there's no loss um, in earnings opportunities uh, to more senior pilots than you get inside of 24 hours. And that at that point, 
um, the schedules really kind of need to be fixed, right? So you're just dealing with the the sick calls at the gates, uh, that kind of thing. So um, 24 hours allows everybody to know whether they uh, have been awarded a trip and then plan their commute properly and stability inside of the airline, right? Uh, so um, those are our asks, and they're designed to provide some schedule flexibility where there isn't schedule flexibility right now. Uh, these constructs are almost ubiquitous across the industry. They're very, very normal. Uh, we are the outlier that doesn't have uh, any tools like this at all. Uh, so important that we address it and that we address some schedule flexibility uh, for, um, you know, everyone so that we can work when we want to work, how we want to work, right? Um, and then uh, the company asks, uh, like I said, I don't necessarily know exactly what's behind these items, right? But uh, dynamic simulator scheduling, uh, something that comes to mind here is a concern about, um, you know, when I hear dynamic, uh, my concern is continuity of training, right? We have a continuity of training problem. Um, uh, certainly the survey reflected that and just uh, watching the work that's being done on the training committee, um, uh, continuity of training is where uh, a lot of folks are falling down and why we have a, a high failure rate in uh, new IRFOs, right? Um, so um, interested to see what they have there. Um, Hopefully, it uh, addresses continuity of training as well. Uh, pilot blank days or training pilot blank days. Uh, so blank days is basically kind of a reserve structure for uh, training pilots, right, where you have a pilot and a simulator set aside, and then the work uh, uh, comes to that, uh, that blank day. Um, basically like a reserve of sorts, but not a full reserve for the month, right, for a training pilot. And this is this is what's needed in order to make sure that um, people who uh, don't have um, a smooth ride through training, right, who have to repeat a lesson or something like that, uh, have uh, an instructor and a simulator set aside so that they have the ability to um, continue through training in a meaningful way. What we're seeing right now is really large gaps, right? So, uh, say a simulator breaks or um, you need to redo lesson three, uh, those kinds of things can result in 60, 90 days uh, for that pilot being benched. And you, you just simply forget what you've learned, you know, 60, 90 days ago and you can't progress, uh, which is why we're seeing uh, a big reason why we're seeing the issues that we're uh, seeing in failure rates with new hire pilots. And I think this will go a long ways to fixing that. So happy to see that ask from the company. Uh, we've been pointing it out for several years now uh, they needed some uh, some way to uh, do exactly this, and uh, happy to see what they're asking for. Uh, domicile opening and closing provisions. Um, this is significantly wider than uh, singular distinct issues. Um, uh, just so everyone's aware, right, uh, we had this conversation about five years ago uh, with the Portland base opening. We are, as an MEC, uh, completely open to uh, opening domiciles. Uh, what's missing in our contract, right, is uh, provisions for moving expenses uh, and some displacement language, right? Who gets who gets shipped out to all these bases, right? So um, that needs to be addressed uh, in order to deal with this. And that was a, I mean, that was almost a 400-page transcript in probably five or six months of of conversation. Uh, it's a very unwieldy issue. It certainly isn't a singular issue. Um, I don't feel like there's much of a threat of an arbitrator um, just simply removing the arbitration clause from the contract 
Uh, remember, this entire negotiation is backstopped uh, by an arbitrator, but there's also the ability to just simply not address an issue or pull out of an issue or say no to an issue. Um, uh, once again, really open to the domicile conversation. Would really like to see this company grow um, and open to you know making paths that'll make that happen. Uh, but it's important that you do it the right way. And uh, just to kind of wrap your head around this issue, uh, we've had you know, 10 or 12 darts within the last day, just since the comm came out, of people who are concerned about getting shipped out to these domiciles who came to this airline because they uh, they want to work in Minneapolis, right? And uh, and even as a commuter, um, opening a you know a domicile in Topeka uh, isn't much good for anybody here, right? So uh, there's a lot of discussion to be had here. Um, we're happy to have all of those discussions. I don't know that it fits into this, uh, uh, into the rubric, right, of this um, midterm conversation, but uh, we're ready to have those conversations with the company and, and happy to hear what they uh, they have to say about opening domiciles. The red-eye duty period exception, I have no idea um, what's being asked for there, and I, I couldn't even begin to address it Um We'll just have to get together with the company and, and see what uh, see what they want to talk about there. All right. Um, with that, I'm going to dig into this uh, this grievance filing. So this is uh, grievance 24666. Uh, um, ironic number. Uh, so the uh, simulator fill uh, pay and credit is what we're talking about. And it touches on a whole bunch of different issues, as you'll see. Right. So uh, I'm going to do a dramatic reading here of the uh, the formal grievance filing, which is on the right side. And then there's just kind of bullet points of everything that it touches on as I walk through this, right? So um, this grievance is based upon the company's violation of the pilot agreement sections 2H, 2AZ, 2BB, 2BQ, 4E, 25I, 25M. Uh, and then uh, the second 25M is uh, actually should read 25M, 2E, 2. Um, and all related uh, sections and letters of agreement when, for example, on or about December 6th of 23, the company uh, assigned uh, reserve pilot Captain Roger Dodger, and the names have been changed to protect the innocent, right? Uh, the uh, uh, Captain Roger Dodger was uh, assigned a simulator fill, uh, seat fill reporting at 2200 with a release time of 0300 on December 7th of 2023. Um, this assignment occurred over two calendar days as it extended past the December 6, 2023 calendar day, which ends at 0200 on December 7th, 2023, and carried on into 0300 on the next calendar day of December 7th, 2023. December 7th uh, was an assigned day off for Captain Dodger. Uh, so the assignment was not authorized pursuant to Section 25M1B, nor was Captain Dodger in the order of assignment for current open time for this assignment pursuant to 25I4. Crew scheduling denied uh, Captain Dodger the pay and credit for the assigned seat fill, claiming that he failed to notify for the assignment. Uh, Captain Dodger is entitled to the pay and credit for this assignment when the ass when it was assigned. And this is pretty key, right? Uh, when it was assigned and removed from current open time per 4E1, 2AZ, 2BB, and 2BQ. 
the company has a responsibility to ensure the legality of this assignment and the fact uh, that the assignment was later removed from this pilot schedule does not remove the responsibility to pay and credit Captain Dodger for the assignment. Further, Captain Dodger was uh, immediately returned to reserve after the illegal assignment uh, was removed from his schedule in violation of 25M2E2, and he was only able to uh, be returned to reserve following a legal rest period. So as you can see, this touches on a lot, a lot of stuff. Uh, so I'm going to dig into the different provisions. We're going to go through some of the uh, definitions first that are the kind of the underpinnings of the uh, contract language, and then we'll get dig into the contract language a little too. So uh, what you see here, right, is just the uh, the definition of a calendar day. Uh, important to note that the calendar day, the contractual calendar day, isn't the same thing as, um, you know, the normal uh, calendar day that begins at uh, midnight, right? Um, it actually uh, begins and ends at 0200. Um, and uh, what's important here, right, uh, 0200 is the start of a new contractual calendar day, and that work into the next day pays an additional minday, right? So two days of work. Uh, so now with a minday that needs to pay 10 hours of pay, right? Uh, note that this was in 2023, so average minday, right? Um, but in this uh, in this example, it isn't really material whether it's average or uh, the true min day of, of 2024. Uh, just note that it is an, an average min day in this example because it is 2023. Um, but two days, ten day, ten hours of work, right? Um, so here, uh, definition two A Z is open time. Um, simply, you know, open time is. Uh, all unassigned revenue and non-revenue flying and reserve days, including flying that did not fit into published lines is new to the airline, is uncovered. Um, for example, due to vacation, sick leave, leave of absence, training. Um, note that in our system, anything that becomes uncovered, even if uh, you're moving the flying from one person to the other person, right? Um, while it is uncovered, it is an open time, and this system does do exactly that, uh, even for that brief moment. Um, and know, you know, at that point that it is an open time, someone go in and pick it up, right? Um, just know that uh, anything that's uncovered is open time. Uh, charters, uh, a very important one here, right? Um, because charter uh, generally comes in after the, the final line award, after the bid packs are published, right? Uh, extra sections and other revenue and non-revenue flying and reserve days covered by section one and other applicable sections of this agreement, right? So um, I just want to note, while the definition of open time doesn't say seat fills, um, that seat fills are a trip, and uh, the contract does exactly this and denotes that trips under Section 25, I think it's 25U, um, can be placed in open time. I know that there is uh, concern in the reserve ranks, right, about getting called out to do seat fills, being subject to um, uh, you know, check rides or doing the work of a check ride as a reserve pilot. Um, we have not had any success addressing that with the company yet in terms of, a, you know, sort of a toggle in uh, e-crew to state that you don't want to have to do seat fills um, uh, and, the, and still at this point uh, can be assigned to a reserve line holder, right? So seat fill do have a report and release time that makes them exactly the same as a trip. Um, and uh, they can be placed in open time under Section 25. Um, this one is really, really important to this conversation, right? 
Um, so 2BB, the original schedule value of a trip. Um, and it's worth reading through this definition, right? The original schedule or original scheduled value or original trip hour period, right? So both the duty and the value of the trip um, is fixed at the time that it is awarded or assigned, as we'll see in the definition, right? Uh, so the original schedule, original scheduled value, and original trip hour period of a trip means the trip as it is configured when it is awarded or assigned, right? Very important, awarded or assigned. Note, it's, note what's not there is notification, right? Um, of a trip uh, as it is configured when it is awarded or assigned to a pilot, uh, subsequent changes to a trip or a pilot schedule associated with a trip will be considered a rescheduling, right? And 25K has some very narrow five parameters that are allowed under rescheduling. Um, important part here is that the scheduled value of this trip happens when it is assigned, not when the pilot is notified, right? So the trip as it is awarded or assigned is, um, is what you're supposed to get paid and what you're pay protected to. And uh, that sets the value of the trip as it's assigned. Um, and then here we have reserve assignment, right? Note that it's an assignment um, because it is tied to the original schedule value when it's assigned. So a reserve assignment means open time, which has been assigned to a pilot on reserve. Pretty simple definition, right? But there's actually a lot happening there um, because uh, all of this ties back to that original schedule value, right? So um, open time when it's assigned, uh, right? And uh, that it is uh, removing that work from open time. And this is this is an important part of this contract is that those work opportunities that are in open time, when they are removed, the way that they are removed is either through award or through assignment, right? An assignment to a reserve, and that's when the trip value is set, as I said. So um, we're, what's the difference between award and assign? And it is actually pretty important, right? So awarded work is stuff that's requested by the pilot, right? So, um, you know, you put in an open time request and you're awarded that, or you put in a line request, I want this line, you're awarded that, right? Assigned is allocated by the company, right? Uh, and it's, it's important to know that the reserve is assigned, right? Um, possibly for successful in the midterms, awarded, uh, but right now, as this contract works, is assigned, and that's when the, the schedule value is fixed at the, is at the assignment. So uh, what we see here, um, you know, when we get out of the definitions and we start to look at trip pay and credit, right, for reserve, regular, and relief line holders, right? So uh, basically all the pilots, uh, with the exception of the training pilot, which has taken care of in the language here, um, uh, Section 4E, right, so we're in compensation, right? And this is basically the header um, to how people are paid at this airline, right? So trips covered by this paragraph E, including all trips on a pilot's final schedule, plus all trips he picks up from open time, is assigned from open time. And that's, that's our uh, Captain Roger Dodger, right? Um, the reservist who's assigned from open time is assigned in training is junior assigned to or which otherwise become assigned or awarded to him. Uh, this paragraph E also includes a trip flown by a training pilot pursuant to the applicable sections of this agreement. So um, what this does, right, is it fixes 
the value of the trip when it comes out of open time uh, to the pilot to whom the trip was assigned, right? And that's where the value is. And remember that we arbitrated a reserve assignment log and are still waiting for a decision back from the arbitrator uh, who apologizes profusely for the, the late um, uh, late decision. Um, but we are waiting for the uh, decision to come back from that arbitrator regarding uh, the reserve assignment log, which is the transparency that's necessary uh, for you um, to see if you should have been assigned a trip, right? Um, and it's important as that's the log of the assignments, the time at which the work comes out of uh, open time and the schedule value and the duty is set, right? Um, without that transparency, it's really difficult to see what's happening with open time. Uh, it is what we bargained for is the transparency uh, to understand when work is coming out of open time um and note that it is at the point that it's assigned not when the pilot notifies for it later right otherwise presumably you could just take trips out of open time put them willy-nilly onto pilots and then remove them and put them back in open time and kind of circumnavigate the entire system that is not what we negotiated we negotiated a different system that's all pinned to the assignment right so uh when was roger dodger entitled to the pay and credit right um uh, what we see here, if you remember back in the narrative, right, uh, who paid denied uh, Captain Dodger the pay and credit for the assigned seat fill, claiming that he failed to notify for the assignment. Uh, again, that's not where uh, the credit value is fixed, right? That's at the time that he's assigned. And uh, Captain Dodger is entitled to the pay and credit for this assignment when it was assigned and removed from current open time. And you can see that there's plenty of provisions here that back that up, right? 4E1, uh, 2AZ, 2BB, and 2BQ uh, are all tied uh, back to um, assignment, right? Not notification. So, Moral of the story is be careful with crew pay when crew pay is telling you that you're not owed money uh, because you didn't notify for a trip. That has nothing to do with nothing. Uh, so 25I4, this is the current open time order of assignment. So uh, what we're talking about with current open time is uh, all open time that is uh, 72 hours from the report time of the trip, right? And uh, assignment, so we have something to do with crew scheduling, taking work out of open time and allocating it to a reservist, right? So current open time order of assignment. Um, and what we see here is uh, this is kind of the header paragraph to the uh, the list, right? Uh, the ordered list of who gets assigned when. Uh, the assignment of open time, right? So uh, uncovered flying involving trips or legs uh, less than 72 hours prior to the report time of such trip shall be among pilots in the following classifications. And then very importantly here, who can accommodate such flying without exceeding any limitations within this agreement or the FARs in the following order, right? So uh, then we have an ordered list of who gets assigned first, second, right? And you work down through uh, through that list. Um, but note, if you can't accommodate the flying, right? Um, because it, uh, say you have a duty conflict, um, there's an FAR conflict, uh, your day off in this case, right? Um, 
uh, if you can't accommodate the flying, uh, you are not to be assigned that that flying out of open time, right? So uh, if we just look at this list, and we've gone through this list a lot on these calls, um, but note what it does, right? Is assigns trips to a reassigned pilot at domicile or assigns legs within the trip hour period, right? So first you look at uh, people who um, whose trips have canceled, right? So not like a training removal where you're you can't be assigned anymore uh, flying and you're you're released from the trip, but uh, you have a cancellation mid trip, and the the company did negotiate for the ability to reassign people uh, during that canceled period, right? So uh, recover that productivity. Um, they're the first people that you look at and uh, has to do with legs in your. Uh, or a cancellation that has occurred in domicile, right? So like uh, 24 hours in advance, you would get a um, uh, a tap, right, uh, coding. Um, those are the first people. Try to recover some, some productivity, right? Uh, pilots on a time of availability trip or a sort of reserve trip. This is a big deal uh, during the, the last negotiations, and they just simply have not used this stuff. Um, the business model changed, and they just didn't uh, didn't – didn't seem to use it. Um, and then we get to the reserve pilots on reserve time within the domicile, right? So this is this is Captain Roger Dodger, right? Uh, on reserve time um, and uh, able to be called out and inside of that domicile where the trip starts and ends, right? Uh, and then we go down through the rest of the list, right? So reserve pilots on uh, reserve time from another domicile, management pilots, um, training pilots who have volunteered, uh, the junior available pilot in category and the junior available pilot category within the system. So um, note C here is kind of the normal place that most current open time goes. Uh, and note that you need to be on reserve time uh, within the domicile, right? And as we saw in the header paragraph, who can accommodate such flying without exceeding limitations, right? Um, so we look at reserve time and the definition of the reserve time to be you. Uh, so reserve time means a continuous period for a pilot um, when a pilot uh, must be available for contact and is obligated to report for work within a specified period following notification in accordance with Section 25M, right? So now notification comes into the picture, and this just has to do with uh, you know, you returning the phone call um, or picking up the phone when crew scheduling calls. Uh, but note, in order to be assigned that trip, you need to be on reserve time, right? Um, so you're either in an AM, PM, red eye period. The report time needs to fit within the uh, the period itself, right? And uh, you need to be available for contact. Uh, so not um, a person who's on their day off who gets a call or has a trip placed on their schedule. Note that there is no way, like say you're, you have two days off and then five days of reserve, right? And taking a trip out of open time and placing it on that reserve, hope, hoping that they'll notify, that's an old green book construct that doesn't exist under this con uh, under this contract. It's not the problem of, you know, Captain Roger Dodger here, but it is a different issue which has to do with being on reserve time. Note in the order of assignment, you need to be on reserve time. If trips are coming out of open time, and getting kind of, I would say, provisionally um, put onto a pilot, uh, that's an earnings opportunity that is now removed from open time that every pilot on property should be, well, at least uh, um, 
uh, line holders and relief line holders are able to pick up an ad, uh, reservist within vacation, hopefully soon uh, reserves inside of current open time. Um, so that's a work opportunity that's being lost. It's being hidden on somebody else of say uh, on one of those off days, uh, crew scheduling is trying to place a trip there um, or even taking it out of open time, placing it on the first day of reserve, right? Uh, with no ability to call that pilot back. Uh, that pilot just simply isn't on reserve time and the trip shouldn't come out of open time. If it does come out of open time and the report time is within the reserve time, uh, and they're the right person in the order of assignment at the time that that person is assigned, all well and good, but they're waiting for that reservist to then um, uh, get called uh, when they come on to reserve, right? And there's no way to take it back off of the reserve as we'll see shortly, right? When it comes out of open time, that's when it's assigned. That's when the pay protection happens. It has nothing to do with notification, right? Um, so if we look here, day off means a day of rest, right? Cannot be assigned to work when you're in rest. You have no obligation to the company. Uh, everyone's pretty familiar with the notion of the day off, right? Um, rest, uh, this definition to BV, Rest or rest period means a continuous period of time perspectively determined, right? So you have to know that rest is scheduled before you go into rest, right? You can't look back and say, oh, well, you didn't get assigned anything. You were on rest. No, you have to know going into rest that you're going into rest. Um, so perspectively determined during which a pilot is free from all restraint or duty, right? So in this case, uh, that overhanging uh, 0200 to 0300 part of that seat fill on the day off, um, clearly is in violation, right? It's supposed to be uh, free from duty uh, and instead was assigned a two-day trip when the pilot only had one day of availability, right? Wrong person because of the order of assignment language here, who can accommodate such flying without exceeding any limitations, right? Clearly, um, you're exceeding uh, the off day off and the rest provisions of what a day off is really supposed to be, right? Free from restraint or duty. Uh, so not eligible to be assigned in the order of assignment. So why is Captain Roger Dodger not in the order of assignment, right? Um, uh, so while Captain uh, Dodger was on reserve time, uh, when the reserve assignment was made, Captain Dodger was not eligible for the assignment, right? Uh, only had one day of reserve remaining, uh, the seat fill assignment, because it released that 0300 impinged on the day off, and the seat fill should not have been awarded to the pilot who uh, should have been awarded, right, to a pilot who requested it, or a pilot with two days of uh, reserve availability remaining. Um, but certainly not the person with just one uh, day remaining and then, uh, you know, trailing off into the day off. It's not the right way to do it. Uh, a reserve pilot uh, cannot be assigned open time on a day off unless all reserves have been exhausted and then only through junior assignment, right? That's when you get into junior assignment way at the bottom of the order of assignment, right? And um, uh, clearly, uh, Captain Dodger uh, could not have been assigned that flying without exceeding the limitations of the agreement. So now we get into the next complexity here, which has to do with... Um, the non-inviolate days off, right? So this is just a regular day off on the schedule, right? So not one of the days designated as an inviolate day, but just kind of a regular day off, right? So 25M1B, non-inviolate days off, uh, in this language reads, um, except when assigned as the junior available pilot in accordance with paragraph I-4, that's that order of assignment, right? 25I-4, 
uh, above, a reserve pilot shall not be involuntarily scheduled, rescheduled, or assigned to any flying or other duty, including deadhead on his days off. So super clear, right? Not in the order of assignment, not supposed to be assigned work on your day off. Um, and this is what happens, uh, right? Um, 25M2E2 uh, on these non-inviolate days off, right? When he is notified that he has been assigned a specific trip, shall not thereafter be obligated to any future reserve time until after the release time of the trip as assigned, rescheduled, or reassigned, right? Uh, when a pilot's actual release time is earlier than the release time of the originally scheduled trip, he can be returned to reserve time following a legal rest period, which is not what occurred here. Uh, what occurred was um, the pilot was assigned the trip, right? Call crew scheduling said, hey, this is an improper assignment. You assigned me a two-day trip when uh, I only had one day of availability. Crew scheduling says, oh, I'll just take it off of you and put you back on reserve. Mm -mm, not anymore, not under this contract, right? Um, at that point, pay protected for the trip because it was assigned and removed from open time. That's what the pay protection is tied to. And then uh, what do you do with that pilot to put him back on reserve time? You can put him back after after legal rest. So you need 12 hours of scheduled domicile rest, right? So, uh, the reserve pilot uh, to which uh, he return or the reserve period to which he returns will be the next specific scheduled reserve time period that was awarded to the pilot at the time the pilot was awarded his final schedule, right? Or the next rescheduled reserve period rescheduled in accordance with paragraph M3C below. So what this is saying is you you have your reserve days in your days off and your inviolate days off which were awarded at the final schedule to a reserve line holder. Note that as a reservist, you are a line holder. You hold a reserve line. This isn't the American style of reserve where uh, you're just on reserve every day and they call you up and then put you into rest and that gives you your days off. That is not the system that we have. You have a line uh, and it's mixed reserve time availability and days off, right? And what this language does is says, listen, if you have a trip that's removed from your schedule after you've been assigned, you have to have a legal rest period, right? That legal rest period needs to be 12 hours long, and it needs to go into your next reserve period, right? That's the next time that you're going to be put back on reserve, right? Um, and then the last uh, last bit of this paragraph, right, however, a pilot's reserve time does not end because a pilot is notified of a future training or checking assignment. Note that a seat fill is not a training or checking assignment for that reserve, right? What this sentence is, um, is the the training or checking assignment that's on your final line award and assigned to you on say the 20th of the month doesn't release you from all of your reserve time from the 1st to the 19th, right? Um, as far as the reservist is concerned, who is assigned a seat fill out of open time, that's a trip. It's just a normal trip like any other trip. It is not a training or checking assignment. It is not something that's assigned through uh, training scheduling. It is not training for that pilot. It's just a trip. Um, so note that that's not what's occurring here. That's what this last sentence is doing is, is addressing uh, one's own actual training uh, and not a seat fill. All right, so that kind of gets through, uh, you know, the the issue of the day here. Um, 
I've I've shown this slide before in the Tuesdays at two, but it's becoming all that much more poignant, right? Um, a contract if you can keep it, right? And our uh, labor policy, right, is it is a strategy, and it's taught by a, a law firm, uh, Ford and Harrison, right, uh, who almost every airline uses, um, and it's a union avoidance strategy. And what we're seeing is that. Uh, what used to be good enough to negotiate a contract, right, is no longer good enough. Um, and it's not just us that has this kind of um, union avoidance labor policy that's being put in place. Uh, they're seeing this on the Delta property, right? And you can read their billboard, right? Delta management, you signed our contract, now honor it. This message brought to you by the Delta pilots. And in the Delta culture, um, what they're saying, right, is they, they have this thing called the rules of the road, which is uh, one of those rules of the road is that you're going to honor your agreements, right? Which was to say, we as Delta culturally are different from Northwest, right, who wasn't honoring its agreements, had terrible labor policies, right, um, uh, wisely uh, what, 12, 15 years ago when that merger occurred and they wrote these rules of the road, one of the things that they said in that was you're going to honor your agreement, right? So you're going to treat labor uh, in a way where you're going to honor your uh, your contracts, right? Um, that has shifted with this labor policy change, and the Delta pilots are calling out uh, their management for following that labor policy strategy, Right. Um, because culturally it is unacceptable according to their rules of the road. Um, and really what's happening here, right, is uh, you don't own anything that you negotiated until an arbitrator says so. This is what the um, Delta management is telling uh, their pilots right now, right? Your contract isn't real until an arbitrator says so. And uh, we're suffering from the same problem. Now, where this becomes really problematic for us, right? We have some 700-ish pilots on property and about 420 who pay dues, right? So the dues of that 420 pilots needs to cover the service, the basic services of, you know, grievance and grievance filings, right? Uh, so that we can protect our contract and protect the provisions that we negotiated. Um, extremely difficult to do that, right? Um, uh, Frontier is suffering the same fate here as this labor policy is playing out on their property. And um, they have uh, done some work to uh, put some resolutions together to move through Alpa National so that they can try to keep more of their dues dollars, right, uh, that are um, uh, paid by the pilot group uh, to hire people to do this work and protect them. And uh, it's just simply very, very difficult to service, you know, 700 pilots off of 400 pilots dues. And uh, we're running about 60% attrition on our new hire pilots, year one pilots, right? Um, and Frontier, I think, is even higher than that. I think they said about 80%. Uh, so it, it's just impossible to keep up with um, all of the basic services, right? Uh, you know, use an analogy, just keeping the sewer running and the water running and the electricity coming to, to the house, right? Um, when uh, the dues dollars don't cover um, all of the work that needs to be done. Uh, so hopefully those resolutions will move through and uh, the other airlines who have um, – more robust, uh, you know, leave dollars 
um, will be able to uh, see their way uh, to allowing those of us who are suffering from very, very high attrition rates uh, to you know, keep the lights on and have, have the basic services that we need to, uh, to pull all this work off. Um, all right. Uh, with that, uh, I just want to open up the call to, uh, to Q&A. Uh, anything you guys have at all, I'll do my best to talk and address some of the, the midterm stuff. I'm sure that the people have questions there. Uh, to whatever extent, we can kind of keep it focused a little bit on uh, Captain Dodger's problems, right, of the uh, the reserve assignment. I think that's helpful for people to to learn how the contract works. Uh, but uh, let's use the raised hand function. Um, I think it is star five to raise your hand on the phone, uh, star six to unmute yourself, and uh, anything, in, uh, anything you guys have at all, uh, happy to... Uh, Sit here and do Q and A until uh, until you guys feel you're done. Don't everybody jump forward at once. Yeah, I'm pretty certain people are seeing um, emails come back from crew pay that tie the pay protection to the notification. Um, that really is the the core of today's discussion, right? That is not where the, the pay protection comes from. It comes from the point at which the, the earnings opportunity is taken out of open time. Um, I know Chris, uh, you know, grievance committee side of this, as well as um, Shane Zern, who's running the payroll task force. Uh, those guys are asking me to relay to the pilot group that this is the problem, that they're seeing it. Um, and along with that, right, that we as a pilot group um, do the work, right, of emailing crew pay, you know, copy the payroll task force, copy the grievance guys, you know, put a grievance in so that we can help track it. But we really need every pilot on property uh, to be doing a lot of the legwork up front, right, because we don't have, uh, you know, uh, a Delta or United size budget. Um, we really do need guys to uh, push, right, on um, – uh, I think I saw something come in there from Tom regarding uh, mandatory retirement. Yeah, this MEC has pretty much sidestepped that issue. It, that Politically, that's, that is a, it's a loser issue. Um, uh, I personally, right, sat through the decade of uh, stagnation, right, um, and it did definitely hurt my career. I don't see guys working to age 67 hurting anybody's career, uh, not in the environment that we're in and not for many, many years. Um, uh, we're, uh, we're ready to ride an all the way to, uh, to extend, um, if the FAA reauthorization bill works through its, uh, its way through and we move up to age 67, right? There's going to be questions about having to capture, um guys who have left right who have you know another you know 18 months left uh, but they're already off of the seniority list how do you address those guys bring them back on the property right and i mean truly if you look at our seniority list and the amount of retirements that are going to occur uh every year year on a on an annual basis over the next many many years um those five or seven uh you know it's, it's, like, it's like a peak year some years we have like one or two and then we have an entire like like a 12 year gap there from 
you know, 01 to 2013, where there was literally no hiring on this property. And everyone who comes on this property with all of the tailwinds should also understand and realize what that meant to the people who did work here through that era, right? Um, uh, there's there's very, very little harm by having another extra five or seven pilots a year uh, continuing to work here. Um, I just don't see the harm. Um, that said, that decade, yeah, it wasn't good. There was a lot of people who lived through that who are here. And uh, uh, it was a, just a different time and a different environment. The context is different. Um, you know, I, I know uh, where the the Alpa National talking points are at on this. Um, and we'll let them do what they need to do with their talking points. And um, we're happy to keep Tom working. All right. Um, any more questions on the seat fill, Minday? Um, yep. Uh, ben, I think I think you got there first. Uh, ben Litchfield, you have the floor and uh, you're up. Hey, I just had a question about the long chips. Is there any updates on those? I've noticed with the bid package with those being gone and then the ad of the midday that the uh, commutability of this airline has just taken a drastic downturn. Do you have any updates with, you know, the cats thing that was supposed to happen or commuter, you know? Yeah, a couple things here. So the cats thing isn't tied to the midterms. The cats thing is tied to the implementation of PBS, um, which is uh according to nav blue somewhere in 2025 um so i'm i'm just going to kind of set the cats thing aside for the, a minute and just talk about the long trips um i think long trips are absolutely key to the success of this airline um they need to be done slightly differently than what they were done in the test bed um during the test period right um, credit was set at like 83 or 86 hours. Uh, there was no mixing of cargo and passenger flying. Um, and we were only seeing about 10 or 12 of those get bid every month, right? Um, what we need is slightly different than that. And uh, what it looks like and what we're pushing for uh, is um, the mixing of passenger and cargo flying that gives those that flying efficiency. All right. Um, uh, the companies, um, the company's desire when we talked initially about long trips is they wanted um, just cargo because they were looking for operational um, integrity. Excuse me, operational integrity with Amazon. Um, so cargo only was their big push there. That the people who are pushing for that kind of don't have um let's say much uh much say anymore and um the crew planning folks including you know our people uh are looking at this going wow if you mix the passenger flying and the cargo flying together this becomes much more efficient um you don't have as a result uh you know an extra half day of work pushed onto the rest of the pilot group um from the bidding of 12 people right so everyone can benefit from this by making this more efficient the other key part here um is that when you get into the pbs world you have things called alv and hlv so an average line value and a historical line value and those kind of have gravitational pulls okay so um <laughs> 
what happens is uh, when a guy wants to bid higher credit than the average line value, there's an equal and opposite force of lower credit. So if someone is someone bids higher credit than the average, then there's another pilot who's awarded lower credit than the average, right? This is really distinctly different than the way that Jude has been running this airline for the last several years by pushing everybody to extremely high credit values, right? Um, what's going to happen with PBS is people who choose to work less will be allowed to work less if there are people who are willing to take that amount of credit, right? This was a very significant sticking point in in the PBS negotiations. Um, it was a personal sticking point for Jude, and he's still talking about it, right? So what the long trips need to do is allow the ability for a pre-bid to occur um, outside of the ALV, HLV rubric, right? Just sticking long trips into PBS doesn't get them the uh, the juice that you get out of the squeeze for long trips. With the long trips, we no longer need to see you know that 83, 86 hour limit. Um, and you could push the credit higher uh, in the final line award value. And this is really important because now you've you've made them efficient, so you can create as many of them as you want without uh, incurring increased cost or additional uh, work done by the rest of the pilot group, right? Um, so it kind of normalizes the credit, but as a bidding tool to bid outside of the ALV, HLV rubric, right? Um, you can now push credit values a little bit higher on these long trips, okay? Um, and I think you can do that without incurring uh, day, you know, uh, more days of work uh, for the pilots who choose to work that way as well. Um, the other thing that happens with this construct, right, is the ability to uh, address one of the upgrade problems that we have, which has to do with... Um, Local pilots getting long trips, right? So they avoid the upgrade because they don't want to be junior and end up assigned uh, endless five and six day trips, um, which is going to become even more concentrated under PBS. It's going to become a bigger problem, right? And it allows the commuter to work those longer trips that they want to work, right? So it gives the, the kind of work to the pilot who desires that type of work. Um, really really important that we have a long trip construct at this company and that it's done as a pre-bid um i i can't think of something more important actually to um really make this place work uh and and solve the upgrade problem it's part of the upgrade problem it's not the whole upgrade problem solved but it is a big part of it right um where this conversation is at, uh, we're still pushing to keep having the conversation. Um, the company is just running out of people. Um, the kind of their lead negotiator, Eric Levenhagen, um, is uh, now essentially running the training department because the training department, as we've talked about a lot, is kind of in collapse. Without his um, time, Right. Uh, very, very difficult. Add to that uh, two uh, NMB negotiations, mediations on the part of the company. Right. Flight attendants and uh, uh, I think um, uh, mechanics, maybe. Right. 
uh, are going to both be in mediation, plus we're doing the midterms at the same time. Uh, it just sucks up all the air in the room. Um, I think the right path here is for us to just write it out, build it out, and talk directly to Jude about why it's why it's a valuable thing. Um, uh, there's there's some ideas there that are kind of outside of the industry norm, uh, kind of innovative ideas that are the the right fix for this company. Um, and I I think he needs to see that there's um, an opportunity to bid higher credit in peak periods like July and, uh, you know, December, where we need as an airline to really, really peak up. That was his big concern with the ALV, HLV question, um, you know, and what PBS does to the ability to peak up uh, because of ALV, HLV is pretty problematic, right? Um, what he's saying is, man, I have a really concern, a big concern about uh, PBS in general, because I can't put more credit onto people's lines uh, during peak periods, right? Um, it just makes it really, really complicated to do that. And the long trip pre-bid would allow them to do exactly that for as many people who want to eat credit that way, right? Um, I, ben, I, I hope that kind of uh, addressed all the questions that you had, and you're, you're more than welcome to uh, uh, any follow-up on the long trip stuff. Um, I just, in a nutshell, there's not a lot of, uh, horsepower on the other side in terms of people to talk to about long trips. Uh, Greg's walking into CQ and saying that long trips, um, are on hold or need to be reevaluated re because of the min day. Uh, and honestly, they don't pay off a min day. They pay off of rig. <sighs> Excuse me. Um, and that rig um, can kind of get eliminated by mixing in the passenger flying. And there's a solution here. And I think it's a solution this airline needs pretty badly. Um, all right. Uh, Shane, uh, you're up next. Do you have the floor? Eric, um, just a quick question. I know you had said kind of stick with um, the issues discussed today. But um, as regards to the opening and closing of domiciles provision. I know I was kind of surprised by that. Um, do you think, like you had already mentioned, it just feels pretty big for a single item um, to be resolved in uh, 60 days. Um, is, is that correct? Well, yeah. I mean, why that arbitration clause is there? There's, there's kind of a, a long list of, of stuff, but the really big one is moving expenses. The next kind of, and that's a that's an entire section, right? This is not separate, distinct, singular change. Uh, this is an entire section of the contract that just simply isn't there uh, because uh, the forefathers at this company didn't bother to address it. Because why would you? Because you're a, a Minneapolis own, uh, only airline, and what they wrote was, you know, the, an arbitration clause, right? So that they could have that negotiation and have an arbitration to reach, you know, conclusion on the bits that they didn't see eye to eye on and put moving uh, expenses into the contract. There are other issues. The displacement issue is not minor, um, and this is the concern that you know I'm getting through darts uh, is that, um, you know, who who's going to go work in the in the other domicile or in the other domiciles. Right. 
And what do those domiciles look like? How many people who uh, came to work here because it is, you know, heavily Minneapolis centric um, who didn't want to commute are going to get shipped out to Topeka and Spokane and um, Orange County, right? And is it going to be 10 people in those bases, right? What is that going to look like? And what I'm hearing is I already had a foot out the door already because of the labor policy and the schedules, but now I'm leaving. Or uh, commuters are saying, awesome, we're going to open bases, but am I going to get, um, you know, uh, shipped out to Laughlin and I live in uh, New Jersey, right? Uh, who gets and who gets shipped out? Right. If you don't have people who raise their hand and go, I want to go. Right. Are uh, people just from the junior uh, end of the end of the seniority list just going to get displaced into whatever location when none of that conversation has been had? But certainly there's a lot of pilot fear there about those things. It's all the same conversations that we had, you know, five years ago. And um, yeah, I, I mean, I'm. I am totally down with bases. We have said this over and over uh, as the company has said, we can't open bases under this contract. And we say, no, you can. You just need to take care of these couple of issues. And to some extent, I don't know if that was some kind of political maneuvering with shareholders or with um, with Amazon. I really don't know why they have that reading of the contract. Um you know, the way that Spangers was trying to push it through with Portland was to run, you know, 10 or 12 pilots out of Portland without any reserves so that they could avoid hotel costs while they expanded lines to Hawaii. Um, you know, even Greg came in and said, man, you know, I was tracking through all of that I, before I was on property, um, you know, in really glad that that it didn't happen or he would have had to shut it down right and then you have the the other question of um just how many how many people are actually going to be in these bases right so you if you take this airline as it currently stands right now right and um you divide it up into 20 little bases of of 15 people right um What's your schedule bidding quality in each one of those little bases? Uh, not necessarily as good as it is uh, with one large pool, right? Um, you're you're going to have very, very little amount of flying to bid on in each one of those bases. Uh, the open time in those little bases is going to be difficult or complex. There, there's just a ton of questions that need to be addressed there, right? And like you said, I think I, it's just a longer conversation. It, it doesn't fit into the rubric of the midterm negotiations unless their notion is, man, if we could just, you know, delete the arbitration clause, but uh, it's not something that we can do because of all the threat that it poses to this pilot group. We're all about opening bases. So let's open bases. Let's do that. Um, I've been talking about, you know, positive space for commuters as being a different tool that does does something different than the rest of the industry, right? And um, I, I'd like to see that happen. I think it's the right tool for the airline. But, I mean, bases work, right? Uh, opening bases is a formula that's worked for airlines for a really, really long time. 
they don't have the commuting costs. They don't have the hotel costs of, you know, having operations in, you know, places where we have concentrations like Dallas or Laughlin or uh, West Florida. Um, you know, let, let's open bases. Let's talk about that. But I do think it's a bigger conversation than anyone has time for in midterms. And as far as I'm aware, um, who we're talking to are the decision makers on that anyways. Um, happy to have an adult conversation about the significant issues of uh, opening a base. No doubt about it. But it isn't the right time or place uh, in this midterm discussion. But maybe they'll come and say, "Hey, we want we want to you know do something different and um, have a have a healthy conversation." Maybe they come in with fully developed language on all of our concerns, and we look at it and go, "Yeah, that's great. Let's do that." Right? But uh, hard to know. Certainly, a lot of concern out of the pilot group over the last twenty four hours. Significant concern. All right. Um. Yeah, I mean, just in a you know total doomsday scenario, just think that through in the context of um, you know a total change in the business plan, and you want to you know not have a discussion about that and just break this thing up into forty bases of twenty people, right? Little or nothing left in Minneapolis. I don't see that as a possibility, but without an arbitration clause having the actual discussions all of the discussions we're certainly open to that threat right we that, that it definitely exists uh austin go ahead uh, you the floor hey i uh, just a question kind of to dovetail into that i uh, when it does come time for you know those four things to um get talked about and decided um does the pilot group have uh, a voting right in that, or is that up to the MEC? And that's uh, that's kind of the end of it at that point. Yeah, a couple things with this, right? So voting, um, whether it's MEC ratification or um, member ratification, right? Member ratification, you typically see with Section 6, you typically see with large pay changes, um, you need to have an MEC that has the ability to ratify LOAs. Um, some of that is just, you know, uh, the plumbing, right? Um, this is why we have representative government, right? So that uh, the decisions about, you know, where where the electrical lines and the sewer lines are going to get put into the new development, right? Um, that kind of stuff uh, needs... MEC ratification representative government to move it along so that, you know, the general populace doesn't have to become an expert on where sewer lines are laid, right? Um, this, uh, the other part of this is you need to have an MEC that has the power uh, to have a meaningful voice with management, right? If everything has to go through member ratification, your MEC has no power, none, and no ability to get anything done for you. And the company simply splits the pilot group into um, small demographics, right? Rips them apart um, and nothing happens, right? So you need an MEC with some 
gravitational pull. Really, really important. Um, in order for an MEC to do um, MEC ratification, the deal needs to be very, very good, right? Um, otherwise, the MEC, and this is this is the power part, says, you know what? Uh, your deal isn't good enough. I don't think it would ratify. What are you going to do, right? What are you going to do, company? You better do better, right? And that's a, that's a little bit of like what we saw with the PBS LOA too, right? There was a lot of ideas about, um, you know, things that were well outside of the industry norm. And we said, and a company was expressing, we really need this done fast. We need it done right now, right now, right now. Well, if you want to go through the MEC ratification, what you're negotiating has to look like industry average or better, right? Um, it can't be weird anomalies and things that are outside of the norm. Uh, otherwise, the MEC can't ratify it. As simple as that is, right? Um, this negotiation is backstopped by an arbitration, and um, it's a little bit different than just a, a solid decision. We can still pull out of you know the whole negotiation or out of uh, specific items in the negotiation, right? Um, it's not a it's not a cage match. Uh, we're not obligated to stay in the negotiation, nor are we. Um, obligated to all eight issues, right? Um, that said, uh, we have to see where the negotiation goes and, um, you know, who benefits. And if it uh, if it's a really, really good deal, then uh, MEC ratification is a viable way of doing that. Uh, also add to that, that LOAs that aren't a good deal um, shouldn't go out for member ratification, right? When things touch on pay, they definitely should go out for member ratification. Pay rates, member ratification. And that's very, very normal uh, across the entire industry. Uh, add to that that typically, you know, we're we're a bit of an anomaly here because we're single council. Right. So your MEC chair and vice chair are also the captain rep, FO rep. Right. Um, typically, your MEC, the executive council, right, the people who run the executive part of, of the, uh, the operation, um, are separate from the LECs, and the LECs hold the votes. And almost without exception, the LECs vote on LOAs. The MECs generally have no power uh, at all, none. Uh, and that, that's a perfectly fine place by my book as well. Um, it's the reps who hold the votes. Uh, that's the LEC, so each domicile typically, sometimes broken up into, uh, you know, seniority bidding uh, bands, right? But we either need domiciles or we need um to get to the point where about uh i think generally in the past at least bill quet who was previously the guy who kind of administered these kinds of questions you'd want to see 1200 ish pilots right 
because that gives you the budget to be able to carry uh, multiple different reps. And I, I think reps are a, a really, really healthy thing. Um, you know, we're just in this weird spot where uh, we're not at the point where we have, I mean, we only have 400 and I think 427 voting members right now. And, uh, you know, even though we're pushing like 700 pilots, right. And um, we need to get to the point where we have enough pilots to create enough dues dollars to have multiple reps and carry reps. It's very expensive to carry reps, right? Because any decision that you make um, with reps, where reps are voting, uh, you have to have MEC meetings, bring all those people in, hotel costs, uh, meals, um, trip drops, right? That, uh, frankly, a couple of MEC meetings a year would exceed our entire budget, the, the entire whole thing. Um, so we're ways off yet from having reps and that I'm just trying to give some context to, you know, uh, voting, how voting is done, why it's done the way that it's done, um, and when and how uh, we go to member ratification. And I, I get that there's angst with this, um, totally understand it, understand where it comes from, um, uh, understand that, uh, pay issues generally go for member ratification. Otherwise, things are done at the LEC level. And I think Zillin would probably tell you that's exactly what has always happened on this property, right? And there's there's been, um, I mean, the story of, um, of LOAs, right, it goes back five, six years where uh, we were doing, you know, LOAs. And we saw some pretty significant improvements through LOAs, right? Um, uh, things like the elimination of um, hard fly only deadhead pay. Uh, we saw the entire premium pay structure come in through an LOA, right? And people were complaining then about about LOAs as well, right? Um, the survey doesn't play that out. The survey plays out that the MEC is in the right place and has the voting ability to do what it needs to do. Hey, Eric, it's Zellin. Yeah. Um, yeah, you're pretty much right on. I, I've been involved pretty much with Alpa on kind of the MEC or negotiating level for, well, geez, it's hard to believe, since like December of 2003. Um, and that's been the case. Even back when we had a handful of pilots coming back after 9-11, we uh, were doing, you know, a few always here and, here and there to, you know, kind of, like you said, keep things moving. Uh, keep the lights on and, you know, try to build the airline back. And I heard complaints way back then, stop doing LOAs, stop doing LOAs. Well, LOAs are not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, they're a lot of times are a good thing. And I think we've gotten just about as many gains through LOAs uh, as we have through just straight up contract negotiations over the years. So it's, it's hurt it for a long, long time. Um, it's a lot of times you don't have the ability to, to put it out to member ratification in only time the MEC is going to vote something on themselves. And when they know that if it did go out, it would pass, it's got to, it's got to be good enough to pass. It's got to be good enough that it's going to get past the majority of the pilots. And I've never seen any MEC here ever put anything up that had it gone out for ratification, it would have been voted down. So. Yeah. Look, that's also why the transparency is really, really important, 
right? That yeah. that's why we do these calls. It's why while we're negotiating, we're talking. I mean, that uh, the general thinking um, for ages has been that you don't talk about your negotiations at all while you're negotiating. And we don't do that. We come out in front of everybody, take the band-aids off and talk about the difficult issues and see where the pilot group is at, right? Uh, part of that is about building consensus. Um, not all issues are going to make every pilot happy. And, you know, uh, we take the bullets for that. That's that's part of the game, right? Um, but it is our job to know where the pilot group is at and um, make decisions that are in the best interest of all the pilot group, right? That rising tide raises all boats. And um, sometimes those decisions are difficult. Uh, and, you know, the, the long trips thing is it's a difficult decision to go the direction that we went with it. I I mean, long trips are my my baby. I want that thing to work. Right. Um, uh, I pushed for them to begin with and uh, they, they need to happen. Um, that said, uh, continuing to have some hobbled long trip construct um this pilot group has zero leverage in that conversation as long as the company can continue to enjoy what it was enjoying um and we need to have that discussion and we need to have the leverage that comes with um them not having it right and what they need to see is that the commuters who are upset about not having long trips in place are vocal with them yeah, and I, I guess if I had to, I hate to speculate too much on the stuff that this is only again that the, the company proposed in the negotiations coming up for midterm. But I'm just guessing here. This is just speculation on the base thing. I I'm guessing if I had to throw something out there that they maybe perceive bases as a way to not have to do long trips because they think that the Truman Day somehow makes it more expensive. I think there's some would be my guess, and that by doing bases, then they won't ever have to do long trips. So um, I, I, it's just uh, trying to read some of the tea leaves there. That's my best guess. Yeah, I think. I mean, they they definitely see bases as an attraction retention tool. Um, but I think they're overestimating a little bit of what the power there is because the bases themselves have to be in places where people actually live or want to live um, to actually eliminate commutes, right? I mean, uh, take Austin, for example, right? I, I, Grand Rapids, right? Um, uh, nobody's about to open a base in South Dakota. It just isn't going to happen, right? So Austin's going to end up moving or commuting like forever at whatever airline he works at, right? Uh, whereas positive space and long trips do something totally different there um, than what the other airlines offer. And that's the competitive advantage that I've been pushing for ages, right? That this, frankly, in a nutshell, this company is already paying for positive space airline tickets on other airlines. Use that money to say that you have positive space commuting and commute Austin to wherever his trip starts. It's that simple. Yeah, and, and I, I, having worked with 
the scheduling guys, the office scheduling guys, and looking at long trips and looking at you know how to improve schedules in general for a long time, going going way back to even before the contract negotiations is there's a I know there's I, I get out on the line I fly with people and they talk about open we should open bases we should open bases but there is actually a deteriorating portion of opening bases it does to the schedules overall schedules because the way our flying works here we're much different than a hub and spoke airline and in a way depending on where the bases are and whether you want to be in that base your schedule can actually deteriorate here in minneapolis by opening bases other places so by opening bases in other places you could end up making this bad schedules in a small base because it's hard to get a good schedule in a small base even with hub and spoke type playing and a lot less choice and it could deteriorate the schedules here in here in minneapolis so you could really dilute the whole quality of schedules in life for the whole pilot group by opening bases depending on where they are and how you do it and it, it's yeah look there's a right way to do this right which is to assure everyone who's here right now today right because i mean the darts are coming in everyone there's a lot of fear about getting shipped out to bases where people don't want to live right and um the right way to do this is to assure everyone that they're not going to get moved to a base unless they want to go to a base and that the growth in those bases will organically happen without people getting displaced that's step number one so that you don't spike attrition through the roof. I mean, like I've said many times, there is no pilot voice. Thank God Rosine is going to have a little pilot voice in there. There is no pilot voice right now telling them how this stuff actually works. And <laughs> no one no one talked to us at all about bases being one of their four issues. And the fact that it is in there, I mean, is going to just drive attrition in and of itself guys who already had bad schedules and are concerned about the quality of the training department and had applications that were going out are saying look i i work here because it's based in minneapolis and this this is not to disenfranchise commuters but it is a real concern people who work here because they want to live in minneapolis and not commute and are willing to you know, take pay cuts because of that and all the rest, right, over working for Delta or United um, uh, simply are just going to go work at Delta and United just because they see the base item, right? Just one of the things that I would tell people on this call to go look at, I mean, you guys all see the schedule every month when it comes out when you're bidding is try to find a city or cities, couple cities where you would open a base and it could be productive because you got to remember our flying moves around about every two, three months, it moves around. We're seasonal. That's what our business model is. And it, that's okay. That's good. I mean, we make money because of that. So where would you open a base? Lakeland, Cincinnati, uh, Laughlin? I mean, we've seen this with the flight attendant group where they open a base. It's open for a year, year and a half, maybe. And then they close it down and they open another one someplace else. And uh, the the track record of them opening bases with the flight attendant group has been horrible. So um, I, I don't know what to say, um, but where would you open a base that would be productive for our system? Um, that's it's concerning, at least from my point of view. And I, as you guys know, I bid pretty senior, so I, I think I'll probably be able to hold Minneapolis as long as I keep up one airplane here. But um, I don't know. That's my my two cents worth on that. Yeah, truly. Let's open bases. Let's do it the right way, right? Um, 
Alex, I see you have a note here in the uh, the chat, right? So a uh, big stretch tinfoil hat. Uh, could bases be with potential IRO acquisition? No, uh, there's there's nothing there. Um, you know, as plugged into the IRO conversation as I have been, right, which includes helping them a little bit with organization. And um, I talked to Nathan Fur, their MEC chair, on a very regular basis, like every week. Um, they are in the death throes. There's nothing there to buy. Uh, they own two airplanes, one 800 and one like, uh, like 400 variant, right? Um, they have a couple of, um, uh, decent charter contracts. I mean, their folks, almost all of their bases are closed. Most of their bases were, uh, Ice flying, they lost their ice flying contract, which is not necessarily desirable flying. You know, this company used to do that stuff and they stopped. Um, uh, they have one base remaining in Cincinnati, right? Uh, I mean, there's nothing to buy there. And frankly, if they buy Aero, right, like an acquisition, it's going to force the merger conversation, which opens up Section 6 right now. And all I've seen out of management so far is no desire to talk about pay rates because they think their pay rates are locked in in an, adva in an advantageous way, right? I, I mean, what pilots understand and know is that the growth isn't going to happen because we're not going to be able to hire pilots in the numbers that are necessary uh, or retain pilots, right? Um, without pay rates that are competitive, I mean, you, can just, you look at the pay rates, and there's only really one outlier left, which is Frontier, and their attrition is even higher than ours. And um, I mean, I think the only reason our attrition isn't higher is because so many people live in Minneapolis who work here. Um, so people are making choices to not not commute um, and are willing to accept those slightly, you know, well, now it is not even slightly, but uh, significant pay differentials, right? Um, all right. So, no, I, I, I don't think it has anything to do with an IRO acquisition necessarily. I mean, if there was something to buy there, it'd be an airplane. And, um, you know, they're, they're probably inclined to try and buy that airplane, like, from whoever the creditor is after it's been separated from the airline and the airline is liquidated, mostly because it's not going to trigger a merger. Um, notions of buying that airline because of the pilots, um, there's almost nobody left. Uh, it's a pretty thin list. And note that most of them are spread across the country. Um, probably don't want to work out of Minneapolis. And even if they were to open... Cincinnati base. I mean, let's do it. Let's talk about it, right? Um, it just has to address everybody's concerns, and that's moving expenses and displacement and like a, a laundry list of little things. But um, it, it's going to take an adult conversation to get through that, and that, that conversation is probably longer than 60 days. And even on their side, they're finding, you know, finding it difficult to um, organize their calendar well enough to have meaningful conversations with us. And the best they can do at the table is to give us Brian Scuds and Kristen Peterson. 
which those aren't names that you've heard on these calls before because there's like much lower down cogs in the machine. Those are the people that are going to do the base conversation now. They're not the decision makers. They don't have the horsepower. Um, but by all means, let's open bases. Let's just make sure we don't really, really hurt ourselves in the process. Um, all right. Anyone else? Uh, there was a hand that went up there. I missed it and uh, it's gone down, but um, uh, anything more before we uh, before we go for the day? All right. Um, seeing none, uh, I'm going to go ahead and close up the call. Thanks, everyone, for getting on. Um, uh, like I said, we're going to try and get a uh, an all-pilot call together. Note that tomorrow the flight attendants are doing informational picketing. Um, uh, to whatever degree, uh, people can get out there and help them out, support them, right? Uh, it's really, really meaningful to them. Um, it, when you get to the point where you're picketing and stuff, um, uh, it's, you know, very emotionally involved and uh, try to support them, even if that means, you know, uh, having a, a kind conversation. Right. Um, uh, but if, if anyone wants to put on a uniform, go have a walk with the flight attendants tomorrow, please go do so. I have a full schedule um, and uh, we're going to have to keep with that schedule and keep the midterm conversation moving. But uh uh, please go walk with the flight attendants. Um, I, I see a last minute uh, question here from Spencer. Uh, how many captains have we had leave in the past six months? I don't know that number off the top of my head. Um, captain attrition has not been anywhere near what uh, what first officer uh, new hire attrition has been. That's more in the 60% mark, right? Which means that we're not making people who can upgrade, which is, um, I mean... A significant problem. Um, uh, how many captains we've had leave in the last six months? I mean, you go back and take a look at the bulletins and add them up, right? Um, uh, it's it isn't a crazy huge number. Uh, we're not a treating like an Air Wisconsin or something like that. That's for sure. Um, the problem is we're not flying the airplanes that we have as much as we were a few years ago, and that the um, the captain numbers, right, uh, aren't increasing in a way that allows us to bring on the uh, additional airplanes that are now being leased out to other companies, right? Um, some of this is being framed up in the, just this conversation of, like, growth, right? We're growing. I mean, we have, like, a 20% mar market share in Minneapolis now, right? The target a couple of years ago was, like, 11. We're doing, we're doing great there. Um, we have grown in terms of numbers. Um, we just can't hang on to people at the uh, as new hires, right? Sixty percent attrition is really tough, um, and it isn't the captain attrition that's killing us. So, uh, hopefully, that answers your question, Spencer. But uh, um, unless there's any follow up or anyone else has any more questions, uh, I think we're going to go ahead and close up the call. All right. Uh, with that, everyone have a good day. Thanks for tuning in. Do appreciate it. See y'all later. Bye bye.